Welcome to the Delve Spirit and Truth Podcast, where we wrestle with questions from the pew. This is Casey. And this is Jenny. So today we're going to delve into orthodoxy. So Jenny, do we know what orthodoxy is? I feel like it's an old, old English ship that that was in many wars. Many wars. Only a few millennials will probably understand that reference. Uh <laughs> We haven't always been pastors, right? When we're looking at this picture of orthodoxy, what we need to really define that as is what it actually means. Right doctrine. It means right doctrine. And when we're looking at orthodox, a lot of different people will go, oh, like Eastern Orthodox? Like, Well, they have root in that understanding. And what we can really boil that down to is what is the centrality of the faith? What is the the indisputed, the undisputed understanding of what the gospel of Christian faith is centered in. And so when we look at that. So orthodoxy is a fancy way of saying good doctrine, which is kind of the core and foundation of Christianity, not the exterior stuff, not the issues that aren't as important, but like the really foundation of the faith. And what that has been crystallized in probably in the 400 AD, um, is in the Nicene Creed. And I actually want to read it to you because this is the centrality of the faith that's been held by the Christian church for millennia. The beginning of the Nicene Creed, it goes, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He became a man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And I read that. Because a lot of Christians get hung up on a lot of issues that are not central to that creed. I like the song a lot better. That's like, I believe in God the Father. (laughs) I believe in Jesus Christ. Can we just like boil it down to that? Because that was a lot of words. That was a lot of words. That was really kind of boring. So when we're looking at this picture of the centrality of the faith, it is culminating in the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's the good news. It is everything that Jesus did, everything he was in his incarnation, culminating all the way up to his resurrection, and everything to do with the character and nature of God. What's really funny is that every time I ever taught like children and youth, and I was like, what's the gospel? And they'd be like, the Bible. And I'm like, okay, I realize that we're in the South and that we call the gospel the Bible, but what's actually the gospel? And it's kind of, it's funny because... Even some adults don't know what the gospel is. No, absolutely. When we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, it's very simple. So not the entire Bible. When you're saying the gospel, you're not saying the whole Bible. No, not at all. It's everything to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then 
all of the doctrines that play into that reality. And I'm not going to go into it because I would bore everyone here. But there are 14 specific doctrines that encompass the gospel. So it's like the Trinity, the resurrection, Jesus being God, like the fundamentals of our faith. Yes, there are fundamentals to our faith that cannot be argued with. Otherwise, you are not orthodox. You are not Christian if you do not believe those things of the gospel. Like you're changing the fundamentals. Exactly. And so what we find in a lot of Western church is a lot of people throw a term around very loosely, and that term is called heresy. When I see people use the term heretic when they call or refer to like a Bible teacher or um, some televangelist or whatever, um, it's like, oh, they're a heretic. And I go, okay, well, why are they a heretic? And then oftentimes there's a lot of generalities that are thrown out and there's no specific reference. Now, don't get me wrong. There are heretics in the world, absolutely, who err from the gospel. When we talk about what a cult is, that is an aberration. That is a corruption of the fundamentals of the faith. When you start to say Jesus isn't God, when you start to say that Jesus did not die for our sins, when you start to say that the Holy Spirit is a force, a power to be manipulated or used, or you refer to Jesus as some angel and that he is not God, and you start to tweak the gospel. It no longer is the simplicity of the gospel of what we see in Scripture. So what you're saying is is that heresy is whenever you stray from the core gospel message, which is, you know, Jesus came, he is God, he was, you know, virgin, sinless birth, died a perfect, you know, had a perfect life, died for our sins, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. And believing in him is the only way to receive the Father and go to heaven, have that abundant life that, that he has provided for us. And so there's things that we can disagree on that don't really matter. It's almost like there's three levels of issues. You know, we have like the the primary things that that are absolutely fundamental to believing the gospel, like Trinity, Jesus is God, things like that. Then there's the secondary issues that we need to agree on to be in fellowship together. Like they're so important that it would be hard for us to do church together if we didn't agree on secondary issues would be like philosophies. Like I believe that the gifts are still for today, or I believe that they've absolutely passed away and that they're no longer around, things like that. And then there's tertiary or third tier issues that it would almost be sin to disagree on. Like it's just kind of silly. We Jesus talked a lot about well, unity. It's, it's not so much a sin to disagree. It would be a sin to split fellowship over, right? It, these are things that are not important to fellowship. They're not important to like adhering to righteousness or worship and doctrine. All of those things, it's a third tier issue. Like, I thought Jesus was blonde and you thought he was brunette. Like, it, it'd be kind of silly for us to cause division in the church over something that— Or the color of the carpet. —really doesn't matter. And so I'm not going to call you a heretic because I, you know, believe one thing that's a tertiary issue and you believe something else. You're only a heretic if your primary issue is skewed or wrong. Exactly. And what we see here in the West is that there is a— there is a very loose throwing around of this term heresy uh, in reference to issues that are second tier or third tier at best. It's almost like if you don't agree with everything that I believe in, I have the right to call you a heretic, even if it's a secondary or tertiary issue. Exactly. But historically, heresy was with those 14 fundamental primary issues. Exactly. 
when you're looking at, well, how do I know if someone's a heretic? Do they corrupt the gospel? Do they change the nature and character of God? That's where you start to see, okay, something's not right. Now, there might be things that you disagree with, right? I have, um, with my elders, we have things that we don't completely agree on because one of them grew up Wesleyan Methodist, and so he has uh, a background in a more Arminian leaning in his faith, which is perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. And I'll say that both of you love scripture. Both of you have scriptural backings for what you believe, and you're able to still fellowship and agree to disagree. Um, Absolutely. Both of your opinions are rooted in scripture, but none of them have to do with the the gospel itself, the primary issues. Right. And we agree on all of the fundamentals of the faith because we're both Christians. But for you to call him a heretic would be both divisive and disunifying. Absolutely. And so what you see here in the West is that there's a lot of people— who start to throw that term heretic around it, which is basically saying you're a cult leader or you're a cultist and that you don't believe in and that you are not a Christian. That you have skewed one of the 14 fundamentals of the faith. Which is hardly ever the case. Now, I'm not saying that hasn't happened before, and I'm not saying there aren't heretics in America, right? And there we have are. entire um, worldviews that say that they're Christian, that, that the general Christian population would not define as Christian because it does skew those 14 primary issues. Absolutely. And so those would be considered a cult in a normal Christian society. They wouldn't accept some of those religions as Christian, even if they claim Christianity because of the skewing right. of those primary issues. And what I see within the Christian church in the West primarily is that there is a whole lot of division that is occurring on this concept of heresy that has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. It has everything to do with, I don't like the way you say or do things because it doesn't line up with my philosophy of how things should be done within the Christian church. Right. I remember growing up and whenever I was young and I was a hairdresser, I had this lady that was much more liberal than me. And she was um, she was saying that, like, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. And she's written she, she's like, I've read many, many philosophy books and I don't believe, you know, she. it wasn't even I don't believe it was like Moses did not write the first five books. And then later I see in the New Testament where Jesus himself said, Moses and the prophets referring to the Old Testament. And so, you know, referring to Torah. And so it's like, well, if he didn't write those first five, then which part did he write that Jesus was referring to? But that's not like heresy. She was misinformed, in my opinion. She had a different view, a different opinion. It's a secondary or tertiary issue. It doesn't change the gospel. And when you look to these things, a lot of arguments are stemming from ignorance. It's not stemming from a place of love to where you're hoping the best, to where you're saying, hey, you're actually in error, like true error in corruption of the gospel. It is... So you're talking about whenever people call other people heretics. Yes. What's frustrating is that it is it is not actually coming from a place of love. It's a coming from a place of fear. 
And so I would say, you know, before I went to Bible college, I didn't understand um, these different issues. I didn't understand the core and fundamental versus the less important that don't change the the gospel sort of things. And so I just thought heresy meant wrong beliefs and that anyone that was a heretic was bad. What I didn't understand is that there are people on both sides of certain issues. They have scripture that each camp has their own scriptures. They are both trying to seek God. They both believe in the fundamentals of the faith and neither one of them are heretics. They just just disagree. Changing the nature of Jesus, changing what he did to redeem us, those are the things that change the faith in our heresy. The things that don't change that, the things, the opinions on who wrote Hebrews and, you know, if sprinkling should be considered real baptism, you know, those things don't change the fact that it's by grace through faith you've been saved by the actions of Jesus. Right. And the way I would term that is that there's a lot of intramural debating that goes on within the church, which is perfectly fine. But that is a Christian issue. It's not a a breaking of fellowship issue. It's, ah, this is my opinion. This is what I think the scripture means by this. And it's not a corruption of those 14 fundamental tenets. Like there's some people that believe that you absolutely have to call God by, you know, his holy name and that you can't right. call God God. And... um. And there's some people within that camp that that do have heresy, <laughs> that have changed the nature of Jesus, have instead of in the Apostles' Creed, it says that he was begotten, that he wasn't made mm-hmm. or wasn't created. And some people believe that he was created, yeah. and that would be That's heretical. Yeah. But, um, but if they don't believe that, but they do believe that you have to call Jesus Yeshua or you have to call God Yah or Yahweh or whatever, that's their opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily heresy that they just have a strong opinion on that. When we're looking at those opinions, they're really rooted in just a conviction. It's like, this is what I believe we should do. Now, do I need to impose that conviction on other people? No. And so what you see is an actual contradiction of Scripture when it says that you need to pursue after unity, you need to pursue after peace, not at the sake of truth, right? I'm talking about on these secondary issues that are not fundamental to the gospel. There's a lot of imposing your tradition or imposing your conviction upon others when the scripture actually explicitly tells you not to do so. Right. And so Romans 14, I love that because it talks about that. It talks about how, you know, you can believe one thing and this person can believe another and that that it's sin for you to do what you believe isn't right. And it's not a sin for them to do that same thing because they're not convicted by it, nor should you try and impose your convictions on them because that would be sin. And so Romans 14, go study it, go read it. That's super helpful for me. But, you know, when I was young in my faith, I didn't realize that there is some freedom to have different convictions. If you have the, if you still believe in the Trinity, you believe in the gospel, but you just happen to have the conviction that women shouldn't wear makeup, they should wear dresses and long hair, and that's what you do from your heart to serve the Lord because you believe that that glorifies Him, then more power to you. But if from your heart you're believing like legalistically that that's going to save you and that all other people that aren't doing that are sinners, that's not so beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. you're still not in heresy; you're just in disagreement. I almost wish that. We as Christians would emulate the uh, the Jewish yarmulke in some form or some fashion, and I'm, oh gosh. I'm I'm being somewhat facetious, but also the reality of it. Like if you go to Jerusalem and you're at the Temple Mount and you're over there looking at the Wailing Wall, and you have 15 to 30 different styles of yarmulkes and hats, 
being worn by Jews. You're like, I know exactly what they believe. Because the different yarmulkes signify different branches of that Exactly. Religion. Exactly. And so they're signified by the yarmulke or the hat that they're wearing or how they're dressed. And you go, I know exactly what their beliefs are. And I know what we disagree on. But the one thing that we all agree on. So we're all Jews. Is that we're all Jews. Not and, us, but them. Yeah. And, and so like for us, I can go, hey, they have a different style of worship. They have a different emphasis of worship. They have a different tradition or rabbi that they listen to and adhere to. Great. Good for them. We all worship the one true God. They only like hymns. They only read KJV. But those over there, they'll listen to modern music or they'll read from the ESV. Exactly. And for us to look and go, okay, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have a difference of opinion. It is not okay to break fellowship over things that are not fundamental to the faith. Or to call people heretics over these non-fundamental issues. A good example of why, of how it is appropriate to actually spit, split fellowship over um, is not tertiary issues where like you're not agreeing with a style of worship or you're not agreeing with um, a version of the Bible, a specific version of the Bible or whatever it may be in those simple things. But what about things that we have always understood to be sin that we're now classifying as permissible? The major issue that's going on right now in the Methodist Church and the split that's taking place there. Now, this isn't the first time a church has ever split or a denomination has split, but you look at the heresy that is being promoted by Western Methodists in general, not all, mind you, not all, but predominantly in the leadership of the permissiveness of identifying as a different gender, or the permissiveness of homosexuality, and the blatant disregard for human depravity. And not believing that we are sinners by nature, and by birth, and by choice, but rather know that's how God made us, and therefore it is not a sin if God made us a homosexual. It is not a sin if God made me this way to where I think I'm another gender. Or And that's kind of the core issue is that the, the belief that God made me this way and that I don't have a choice. Right. And that that is problematic in that... The scripture is very clear and human nature is very clear just by experience to look and see that, yes, it is sin. It's just as perverse as any other sexual sin that's permitted in the church. But the problem is when you as a hierarchy say, no, this is acceptable and this is not, that's when you start to see a justifiable separation of fellowship because you're saying, no, this is no longer sin. And this is the issue that you saw with Israel throughout its history. Yeah, it would be like the same thing as saying is, um, you know what, people don't have to get married anymore. You know, they can just live together. They can sleep together. It's almost dismissing the sanctity of marriage Mm. and the establishment of that. If whole church bodies started taking that position of we have new revelation and now it's okay Mm -hmm. to do, do whatever you want. That's not at the fundamental of the faith. Because if it is not a corruption of the gospel and that's what i'm going to keep reiterating it is jesus death burial and resurrection why he died what he died for how he died sinlessly all of these things that encapsulate what he did we degenerate by justifying sin and so the reason why 
that is heresy is that you're saying that people are changing sin and changing depravity and redefining it, saying that this is no longer sin, no longer depravity. And depravity is one of the 14 fundamental issues. Yes, human depravity by its definition. We were born sinners, and Jesus died for all mankind, and he was sinless. So we're reclassifying sin, and that's what makes that a heresy. Absolutely. And so that is worth calling someone a heretic over. It is worth breaking fellowship over. Absolutely. And and I think every... Every Christian who honestly looks at the gospel and reads their scripture and looks at those things should be able to discern, no, this is not appropriate. But what we see within the body of Christ, more predominant than this issue of sin, now there are these more woke progressive churches who are really accepting of the issues of our era and and really justifying sin. That is a problem in America, absolutely, and in the West in general. But there's also another major issue I see within the body of Christ of this loose term of heresy is really coming from one camp within the body of Christ being thrown towards another. And that's where a lot of cessationists who do not believe in the gifts of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit today start classifying charismatics as heretics. And that is very dangerous in my opinion. Right. And so I, when I went to Bible college, I learned about cessationists and where that came from. And the primary understanding of the, for them is the scripture in first Corinthians 13 that, that talks about now that that which is perfect has come, there's no longer going to be a need for prophecy, for wisdom. Yeah. And no longer need for tongues, no longer need for these more, uh, the pneumatica, the spiritual manifestation of the gifts. But the problem is that you either have to apply the whole scripture to now or none of the scripture. And included in that scripture, it says knowledge will pass away and wisdom will pass away. It is really a an approach of bias when you're approaching that verse, because it's very clear. So cessationists believe that that which is perfect is speaking of the Bible, the canonization of scripture, when all the chapters and books were put together and they decided okay this is the completion of the of the bible nothing will be added or taken away and so they believe that that is perfect and it's perfection and so now we no longer need prophecy because we have the completion of scripture now we no longer need tongues and interpretations of tongues because we have the completion of of the bible right but the problem is, is that we still have wisdom and understanding and or knowledge and so that verse doesn't fit if we're talking about the Bible because we still have knowledge. Yeah, it's it's not a proper application of logic. The way that non-cessationists view that is that that which is perfect is Jesus' return. And so when he returns, we're neither going to need prophecy, nor tongues, nor wisdom, nor knowledge because there will be understanding. He will bring all things into completion. We will be taught by him face-to-face. There's no need of of needing to be spoken to through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and there will be, you know, wisdom and knowledge imparted to us that we're not going to have to keep searching and, and finding those things. So those two camps, the the cessationist and the charismatic, interpret that verse very differently. Mm-hmm. And if you, besides that one verse, if you study the the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God is talking to people. God is giving people heads up, you know, in the New Testament, communicator, Paul talks about like to each church is given these gifts of the spirit. And these gifts are for the edification of the body, for the building up, for all these things. And so they're good 
and they have good benefits. Um, unfortunately, they kind of died out and died away, and we replaced it with head knowledge. Well, the big thing for me is when I look at the Pharisees, I see people that knew scripture and had all the knowledge, followed all the religious checklist, but denied Jesus and killed him. There's a need for intimacy. There's a need for having a personal relationship, which includes hearing Jesus's voice. Like he says, the sheep know my voice and having the Holy Spirit, which he said would lead us in all knowledge, would, you know, empower us, would there's so much in the New Testament about power and walking in power. And it, even Jesus warns that in the last days that there's going to be people that are always learning but never arriving at the truth that those people deny the power of God. And that's in Second Timothy. He doesn't say right before the Bible comes. He says in the last days. The way that Casey and I started believing about the gifts of the Spirit was through studying the Bible and laying aside our biases and laying aside the doctrine that had been kind of hounded into our heads growing up right we weren't happy about it we we didn't think tongues were real we didn't think the gifts that prophecy was still around but the more we studied scripture in context the more we saw it right and, and so those are those are intramural debates that you can disagree on absolutely but to call someone a heretic because they don't agree with you that is dangerous in my opinion, not only is it dangerous for you personally, but it is divisive and destructive to the body of Christ. And Jesus says that you'll know my people for their love for one another. You'll know them for their unity. There's a lot in the Bible that talks about not slandering, not gossiping. And the people that are are calling other people heretics and warning people as if those people are like demon possessed, which, by the way, that's what they said about Jesus then those people are causing division. They're coming from a place of judgment. And the Bible says that there's only one lawgiver and judge. And they are not known by their love. And so why exactly are you saying, Casey, that it's dangerous that people call people heretics whenever it's not actually a tertiary or a primary issue? What is oftentimes coupled with this idea of calling charismatics heretics um, from the cessationist camp is that that is oftentimes coupled with saying that the people are not working in the power of the Holy Spirit, that those people are moving in the power of demonic spirits. That's the dangerous part, because when you're looking at this understanding of what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it is attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And so it is that same equivalent, if not committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in attributing charismatics being moved and governed by the devil by demons that they're prophesying by demons that they're moving in mysticism by but, the power of spirits not people the are holy spirit healed that, by demons yeah that people are being healed and the miraculous is occurring by demons which are accusations thrown at a lot of charismatic churches that is in my opinion blasphemy of the holy spirit and that is unforgivable and that's so, why it's dangerous. And so whenever I was growing up, you know, I was taught in my conservative denomination that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was denying Jesus. That is probably the most conservative concept held. And I will tell you why that is what I was taught my whole life. But how I came to the conclusion that it is not is I was reading the Bible. And in context, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus designates this is blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Because in context, what happened was Jesus did a miracle. He 
He cast out a devil. And the Pharisees said he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. So they were attributing him working in the Holy Spirit as a demonic spirit. Exactly. And then Jesus goes on to warn them. That this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can you can blaspheme Jesus all day. He'll forgive you. But you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's where it's dangerous. And so in context, that's exactly what was going on. And then that was the warning that he gave. For whoever's listening to this, you're going to be right there going like, that's not what that means. I'm like, okay, you don't have to agree with me. Again, not a primary issue. I think it's a big issue if you actually want to know what not to do to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We encourage you to go read that verse in context and study it and ask yourself, what's the context of that? Yeah, it's in Matthew. I can't remember exactly where. Why is this important? Why do we as Christians need to be very wary of what is it, wetting the sword against our brothers, is that it only causes division. It only causes a watchdog mentality of fear that you need to look out for the unknown. And you go, okay, well, the Holy Spirit is not confined to our own concept of what he can and cannot do. He is God. And so in that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage in Matthew 12, it talks about a good tree produces good fruit, and I would call healing and deliverance a good fruit, and that a bad tree produces bad fruit. And so we examine the fruit. And so when people are saying that these churches that are seeing miracles, that like crazy cool miracles, are operating by the power of the devil, then that would be calling good fruit bad fruit. Hmm. And so when we are operating in the Holy Spirit and we're inviting him, I feel like with this whole watchdog mentality, they're saying, yeah, you might be asking for the Holy Spirit, but you're actually getting a demon. But the problem I have with that is scripture that's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it says, if you ask like a good father for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. If you ask him for a piece of bread, he's not going to give you a stone. And basically, we don't have to fear that God's going to give us a demon if we're asking for the Holy Spirit. Right. And and people would say, well, the argument to that would be like, well, no, you might be asking God for this, but a demon's going to sneak in. And I go, look, no, obviously, yes, you're going to say, well, God's obviously not going to give you a demon. Yeah, we know that. But this idea that in sincerity of heart, and I'm not saying all people who are sincere are right, by the way, um, because we know that's not true. When we're looking at a person is repenting of sin openly before God, that they are refining themselves and adhering themselves to the scripture. Their guide is God in his word. And then they are saying, God, I'm reading what you say, what you say to be true, and I'm believing it to be true. Please give me these things you say are real. Why in the world would we attribute the devil is going to bring deception and lies and power to you when you are asking God for what he said he would freely give. And I find it very disingenuous, and I find it fear-mongering for people to say that demons are going to jump on or latch on, or you're going to be deceived, that you're going to be performing mysticism or the occult. And I'm going, if you're sincerely praying to Jesus, the one true God, you are cleansing your heart, you are ridding yourself of selfishness, you are dying to yourself, and to have the gall to say those are demons— that are now empowering you 
is pretty important in my mind. I could see where if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, you don't know what the Holy Spirit feels like, and you are only going off head knowledge where you could have that fear. Because now all you have is head knowledge, which is the same thing the Pharisees had, right? And so that's why it's important that we have an intimate relationship with the Lord guided by the Holy Spirit, that we know what the Spirit feels like. And so then when we close our eyes, we can feel his presence. We can know what he is like. And so it's that inner thing inside of us. It's our spirit that can tell us if something is demonic, if something is not of the Holy Spirit. In this idea of orthodoxy and this understanding of orthodoxy, which is right doctrine, proper doctrine, which is the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the nature and the character of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In all of those issues, those are the fundamentals where you can break fellowship over, where you should warn people, hey, you're moving into error. But when you're coming into, oh, I disagree with this certain philosophy of end times or this certain idea of God's extent of grace or man's extent of free will or operating in the gifts or operating in the gifts or whether the gifts don't exist yeah those are second tier issues predominantly in in some of that three third tier to where you can absolutely have fellowship but there is absolutely no reason to call someone a heretic if they are not out of line in those orthodox ideas and understanding of what the gospel is and what i want to encourage everyone into is paul tells us and describes to us what maturity looks like. Maturity in the faith is where you are not swayed by every wind of doctrine to where when you hear someone's philosophy, when you hear someone's ideas, take for example, I could read Frederick Nietzsche and not be afraid that I'm going to be turned into an atheist because that is a philosophical humanistic mindset stemming from a place if you actually do your homework and aren't ignorant You can actually read and understand what he believed and how he came to his conclusions and it not affect you. So you don't have to be afraid that reading something like that, especially since you know the scripture in your heart, you've studied it, it's in your mind, you know what the Holy Spirit feels like. He's promised to guide you into all truth. You could read something like that and not become demonized. Absolutely. Or deceived. And and this is where I think a lot of us fall into false claims of heresy towards other people is that we're moving from a place of fear and we're honestly moving from a place of ignorance because if you know the word of god and you believe the word of god is pure perfect inerrant without fault that is always going to be your plumb line and so when people come with this watchdog mentality of let me warn you let me warn you about you know these people or this church or whatever because this could be happening they're really operating in a place of fear they're stirring up fear it's not power love and a sound mind which god says that we're not given a spirit of fear it is operating from a place of fear and then instilling that fear into others and unfortunately those people aren't deep enough with the holy spirit walking with him enough to have confidence in that power love and a sound mind knowing that i can read stuff i disagree with c.s lewis had some crazy doctrines that, that were not good but you can still read his stuff and be encouraged by it. john piper has some really beautiful stuff but then he has some stuff I really disagree with about the nature of God. Some of his doctrine really, to me, corrupts the nature of God's goodness. And But I can still read his books 
and and glean good stuff. I don't have to treat him as though he is this dangerous heretic that's going to infiltrate my mind. You know, to me, it's more dangerous to have that weird watchdog mindset. Jesus says in the last days that there's going to be people that are wolf in sheep's clothing, that they're ravenous wolves on the inside. And so if they're operating from a place of fear, of terror, of this watchdog mentality, and not from a place of power, love, sound mind, from love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, you know, all the goodness, grace, from a place of grace, then are they operating from the Lord's side or are they operating from not the Lord's side? My last thought for you is this, that you would be those who know the Word of God and who are dependent on the Holy Spirit to discern all truth. And that when you have the Word of God and you have the Holy Spirit guiding you, you don't have to be afraid of every teaching that you might hear. You don't have to be afraid of different points of view. It's not going to sway you unless it's true. Or unless you don't have a relationship with the Lord and you don't know his scripture. And so what we need above all else is to pursue the word of God coupled with a guiding of God as the author of that scripture. Intimacy with the Lord himself and not just through head knowledge. So next time we're going to be delving into this second idea of prophecy. What is prophecy? Why does it matter? Do we need it today? Is it weird, funky, and scary? So if this podcast has blessed you by giving you a deeper understanding of who God is and has helped you grow in your relationship with him, we would like you to share with your friends who would benefit from these conversations. And also, if there is a particular topic you would like Jenny or me to discuss, let us know by visiting our landing page, Delve With Us dot info and dropping us an email until next time we bless you to walk in spirit and in truth